Welcome, dear friends, to my Peace Podcast. I'm John Deere. Thanks so much for taking time to listen. All these podcasts are free, and you can find them on my website, johndeere.org, or at my little nonprofit group, beatitudecenter.org, or soundcloud.com. There's a dozen of them on Jesus and Sermon on the Mount, Gandhi, King, Dorothy Day, and others. So please tell your friends about them, and I encourage them to listen to them, and I hope you enjoy them. Today I'm going to talk about my friend and teacher, Father Daniel Berrigan, the legendary priest, poet, author, activist, and peacemaker who would have turned 100 on May 9th, 2021. At Dan's funeral in early May 2016, my friend Father Steve Kelly said Dan should be named a doctor of the church. I thought that was great. I think Daniel Berrigan was one of the great saints and prophets of our time, right up there with Dorothy Day, Martin Luther King Jr., Thomas Merton, Rosa Parks, Cesar Chavez, Archbishop Romero, Archbishop Tutu, Mohandas Gandhi, and Thich Nhat Hanh. Dan has come to embody the Christian insistence on peace, nonviolence, and disarmament in a world of total war and nuclear weapons. He was the first priest in U.S. history to be arrested for protesting war, and he became the symbol of opposition to the Vietnam War and nuclear weapons, and he helped make it much easier for Catholics and all Christians to work for justice and peace. One is called to live nonviolently, Daniel Berrigan once wrote, even if the change one works for seems impossible. It may or may not be possible to turn the United States around through nonviolent revolution, but one thing favors such an attempt, the total inability of violence to change anything for the better. In some ways, that statement, I think, sums up his life and teachings. He said, in effect, that the only way to survive in the world of violence, indeed, the only way to live and thrive and make a difference, was through the daily life of creative, active nonviolence. Dan exemplified a Christianity that works for peace, speaks for peace, and welcomes Christ's resurrection gift of peace. He taught us that God does not bless war, justify war, or create war. Dan pointed to the nonviolent Jesus who blessed, who blessed peacemakers, who calls us to love our enemies, and commands us to take up the cross of nonviolent resistance to empire. So Dan not only helped end the Vietnam War and lead the new movement against nuclear weapons, he changed the church. His life offers a way forward, I think, for all of us. So that's what I'd like to do today is to walk through his life and then offer some lessons and things I learned personally from him. But first, in honor of Dan, as he would do, we have to begin with a poem. So here's one of my favorite Dan poems. This is called The Trouble with Our State. The trouble with our state was not civil disobedience which in any case was hesitant and rare. Civil disobedience was rare as kidney stone. No, rarer. It was disappearing like immigrants' disease. You've heard of a war on cancer? There's no war like the plague of media. There's no war like routine. There's no war like three square meals. There's no war like a prevailing wind. It blows softly, whispers, don't rock the boat. The sails obey, the ship of state rolls on. The trouble with our state, we learned it only afterward, when the dead resembled the living who resembled the dead, and civil virtue shone like paint on tin, and tin citizens and tin soldiers marched to the common whip. Our trouble, the trouble with our state, with our state of soul, our state of siege, was civil obedience. Oh, I love that. You can find that great poem in uh, my big book of his collected poems called And the Risen Bread, and in my book, uh, Daniel Berrigan, Essential Writings, and all the Dan books, you can get them online. And I'm just now finishing a new book of Dan's most political poems, which will be coming out in 2021, called The Trouble with Our State. Daniel Berrigan was born on May 9, 1921, 100 years ago, the fifth of six boys 
grew up in Syracuse, entered the Jesuits in 1939, was ordained a priest in 1952, and published his first book of poetry called Time Without Number in 1957, which promptly won the Lawn Poetry Award and was uh, up for a National Book Award. Dan would go on to publish over 50 books of poetry, essays, theology studies, journals, plays, and scripture studies. I remember for Dan's 80th birthday, we used to throw these big parties with him. Uh, I invited Kurt Vonnegut, and he stood up to the microphone and said, to me, Father Daniel Berrigan is Jesus as a poet. That was just marvelous. Thank you, Kurt. By the mid-1960s, Dan was a very famous poet, but he became a leading voice against the war in Vietnam. And on October 22nd, 1967, if you're here with the chronology, there was this first major massive mobilization on the Pentagon. So Dan took a whole busload of Cornell students, he was a chaplain at Cornell, to the protest and while they were there, they all said, well, let's all get arrested. And Dan was kind of put on the spot and there's no way he could not get arrested. So he went with them and was locked up for two weeks. And that was the first time a priest had ever done that in US history. A few months later, in February, 1968, the peace movement was invited to send two people to Hanoi into North Vietnam. So Daniel Berrigan and Howard Zinn were picked and they flew to Hanoi can imagine the height of the Vietnam War. They get there, they're there one day, and the air raid starts to go off. They dash with all the people in downtown Hanoi into a shelter, and the U.S. bombed 24-7 for the next eight days. They targeted Dan. Um, so that, as he said, cleared the mind in terms of what to do next. So on May 17, 1968, Dan and the Keatonsville Nine entered a draft board house in suburbs of Baltimore called Keatonsville, Maryland. They walked up the stairs to the building. They took out all the draft files. They just walked in. There was a secretary there, opened the file drawers. There were 300 of them, took them out, went downstairs, went to the parking lot. There's all the media there, including the CBS Evening News. They put them on the ground. And then they pour homemade napalm on the draft files and burned them. And Dan released this statement, this quote, here goes. Our apologies, good friends, for the fracture of good order, the burning of paper instead of children, the angering of the orderlies in the front parlor of the charnel house. We could not. So help us God do otherwise. I think it's one of the greatest statements in resistance literature. The way I interpret it is, hey, we're so sorry. We'd like to burn children with, like, with napalm like the rest of you, but we, we can't. We only burn paper. It's so, the statement is so shocking. And of course, people freaked out. That's what's so hard to get now all these years later. How dare you burn the draft files? Very few people were upset of dropping napalm on children. We killed three million people in the Indochina war. So their action, it's very hard to grasp this now, was on the front page of every newspaper in the United States and around the world. And remember, it was only just two weeks before Bobby Kennedy was killed. It was only six weeks after Dr. King was killed. But it was not just because of what they did and the way they did it, but because priests did it. That's really the shocking thing. This has never happened before. It's hard to really imagine it because there's so many problems with the church, but there's a lot of good in the church. That action led to over 300 similar draft board raids, and that eventually ended the draft because it destroyed all the paperwork. Remember, there's no computers. There's no cell phones or internet. So those were the only records that we had. And basically, in the whole northeast of the country, had no more records of the draft. So the Vietnam War ended, and the government and the media never talked about that. But that's what really happened. Dan and the others, of course, were found guilty. And in the summer of 1969, while he was waiting sentencing, 
he wrote the famous play, The Trial of the Kings from Nine, which has been put on in Broadway and around the world. And Gregory Peck made a movie of it. He's supposed to turn himself in in April 1970. And instead of reporting to prison, he went underground. And he wasn't caught for five months. He's traveling through the Northeast, speaking to the media. He'd be on the CBS Evening News. Uh, he wrote articles. He was always in print, the Village Voice. The New York Times had him on the front page almost every day. Where is he? Why can't the FBI arrest a priest? You know, they, we now think there were 400 agents chasing after this priest. He was like Edmund Campion, the famous Jesuit of the 1600s who was hunted down and eventually killed. Uh, his head was hung at the tower one, because the king opposed and he opposed the king. Dan appeared one Sunday at a big church in Philadelphia and gave this incredible homily and then slipped away. J. Edgar Hoover was personally apoplectic and furious over this. And so they doubled the number and eventually Dan was caught. He was having a vacation on the underground on Block Island with his friends, William Stringfellow and others. And he went on to spend two years in Danbury Prison. And he almost died there during an overdose of the Novocaine in a normal dental procedure. So he was released in February 1972. Well, all through that, Dan became the most well-known priest in the world. And all during that time and since then, he consistently called for the church to abolish the just war theory and return to the nonviolence of Jesus. That, that never happened before. And even Pope John, that everybody loves, never said that. While he was underground, for example, just one example, he wrote an open letter to the weathermen in the village voice. Now, the weathermen were the famous small resistant movement that used violence and blew up draft board buildings. He wrote this long essay, and if you dig deep in it, it says this one sentence. Here it goes. The death of a single human being is too heavy a price to pay for the vindication of any principle, however sacred. Wow. It's one of the most important teachings of Dan's life. In other words, there is no cause, however noble, for which we will ever again kill people or support the taking of a single human life. We do not kill. We do not support killing. We do not kill people who kill people to show that killing people is wrong. We work to stop the killing. And so we won't join the U.S. military we won't send our kids to the military. We don't urge young people to join the military. We urge them to quit the military, and we're going to resist the military and its wars for the rest of our lives, but we will not use violence during our resistance. The future is a world without war and violence. It's a new culture of justice and nonviolence that we can barely imagine, but we are sowing the seeds for it. I later met someone in the Letterman. I would say this was around the year 2000. I asked him, and I've heard rumors, but I've been researching Dan for 40 years, my friend. And um, I said, did that letter in the village moist make a difference? She said, yeah, that was the end of the weather. They were totally, you can't argue with Father David Barry. And by the way, he's making a difference, not us. He's traveling around and having a good time. You know, and he's, every, everybody's furious with him, and he's just doing great. So that was very amazing. You never know the power of your words and your teachings for not us. But one of the most amazing things about Daniel Berg and his brother Phil was that they kept at it. The press grew bored with them. The crowd stopped showing up. They were on the cover of Time magazine, but then that stopped. Their book sales dwindled. The movement died. The world only worsened, and they kept period. That's one of their greatest legacies and greatest teachings. Then, out of the blue, September 9th, 1980, Daniel and Philip Berrigan and six friends walk into the nuclear weapons factory outside of Philadelphia. It's a nice, beautiful Tuesday morning, as I, I remember vaguely. Into the General Electric headquarters in this place called King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. And they didn't know what they were doing. They prayed. They followed the workers. The door was open. There's no security. And they walked down the hallway and they would look at a room. And there's two nuclear weapons sitting there, just sitting there, like massive nuclear weapons. So they pulled out hammers, 
citing the verse from Isaiah about beating swords into postures and hammered on them. And what they said was the first act of disarmament in history and certainly the first act of nuclear disarmament in history. Uh, they were arrested, convicted, and faced up to 10 years in prison. Their plowshares action, as it became called, uh, known as that, was the first of over 100 actions now, including the one I did in 19, 1993, which was about the 50th action. So during the trial, which was later made into a movie with Martin Sheen, Dan uh, took the witness stand and gave one of the greatest testimonies ever. So I'm going to read this. And this has been a critical teaching for my whole life. And that's why I'm reading to you. I want you to really listen carefully to this, to this word. Remember, he's on a witness stand. The only message I have to the world is we are not allowed to kill innocent people. We are not allowed to be complicit in murder. We are not allowed to be silent while preparations for mass murder proceed in our name with our money secretly. It's a terrible thing for me to live in a time where I have nothing else to say to human beings except stop killing. There are so many beautiful things that I would love to be saying to people. There are other projects I could be very helpful at, and I can't do them. I cannot because everything is in danger. Everything is up for grabs. Ours is a kind of primitive situation, even though we would call ourselves sophisticated. Our plight is very primitive from a Christian point of view. We are back where we started. Thou shalt not kill. We are not allowed to kill. Everything today comes down to that. Everything. Wow. So throughout the 1980s, he was waiting to go to prison for 10 years, eventually got time served. But in, into the 1990s, Dan basically hit the road uh, and he spoke somewhere in the country every weekend. And he published a book or two every year from then on, books of poetry, essays. And he did a whole series of 20 books on the Hebrew Bible, mainly the prophets. He also served as a hospital chaplain in New York City for the hospital for the poorest of the poor and then later for people with AIDS. In 1984, he traveled to El Salvador and Nicaragua. In 1985, he went to live in South America for six months where he helped out in the movie The Mission with his friends Robert De Niro, Jeremy Irons, and Liam Neeson. He also worked once a month in the local men's homeless shelter on the Upper West Side, which was hard. I did it too. He also visited men on death row. Eventually in the, in the 2000s, Dan started to really slow down. And the old Jesuit community where I lived with him was disbanded. Many of them had died. And Dan was moved into the Jesuit nursing home in the Bronx. And during his last five years, he's into his 90s now, he steadily, steadily declined and lost a lot of weight. And by the end, he could barely walk or talk or hear. Yet he never once complained. And he died peacefully on April 30th, 2016, a week before his 95th birthday. He was teaching me right up to the day he died. I met Dan uh, in the early 1980s. The week I entered the Jesuits, I wrote to him. I had opportunities to meet him in the 70s, but I didn't. But once I started writing to him and then met him, I, I took him as my teacher for the rest of my life. Eventually, I moved into his community. We lived together for 10 years or so, came closest of friends. We traveled the country together to Ireland many times, gave talks and retreats together, and wrote weekly for maybe 30 years. I was with him just a week before he died and was on my way to see him when he died. I think he's such a great peacemaker and an inspiration for these bad times because uh, he's just so charismatic and influential and he is an intellectual as well and a poet to really encourage you to get his books i've studied every single one of them and i have them all and now i'm his literary executor and i've gotten most of them republished including his autobiography to dwell in peace but at least get the book i worked on daniel barrett and essential writings there's just amazing things in that book 
So here's just a series of stories and lessons and teachings that I learned from Dan over the decades. It's just kind of a long list. I haven't numbered them, but I want to go through them and just sit back and enjoy and note whatever touches you. First of all, Dan believed in nonviolence and he practiced nonviolence as the ordinary way of life, the way to be a human being. And when I say that, no one else said that before. This is what I mean about Dan. Gandhi never said that. Dr. King never said it. To be human is to be nonviolent. To be nonviolent is to be human. That's Daniel Berger. He And I've been saying it ever since. But he was the one I heard say this. I don't know that it's in any of his writings. I heard him say it. Remember, I went on probably over 100 weekend retreats with him. And I heard him speak maybe 500 times. Uh, he was a poet of nonviolence, a visionary of nonviolence, a teacher of nonviolence, an apostle of nonviolence. He saw himself in the lineage of nonviolence. Now, Dan would never put it this way, though, at this point he did. This is, again, my reflection over a whole lifetime as, like, if you will, his student or disciple uh, on the meaning of his life. He saw himself in the lineage of nonviolence from Gandhi and King to Dorothy Day and Merton and his brother Phil. Uh, and I know he referred to himself that way, and that's how I see my own life. I invite you to reflect on your life. Then. If you're part of that lineage, what are you doing with your life? And get with the vision of nonviolence. Isn't that wonderful? But Dan, actually, unlike all those people, and I would include her, was famous for his way with words. He put an original twist on everything making any ordinary statement for justice and disarmament. And you know, you've read statements, how they can be so boring and statistics. His, you don't know what he's talking about. He's, they're mysterious, they're poetic, they're challenging, they're even mystical. And that's why you want to keep going back and reading his writings. And you dig into it and you go, wow. If you work at it, you will be rewarded. 20 years ago, for example, when I was going through his archives at Cornell for my collection, Daniel Bergen's Central Writings, I came upon these unpublished notes that I believe there's probably 10,000 talks worth of notes at Cornell and 10,000 letters he wrote. It's incredible. A whole century's worth of stuff to be studied in the future. I found this unpublished talk of notes on nonviolence, probably from 1964 or 1965. Now, no one was, except for Martin Luther King, then actually writing or talking per se on nonviolence. Merton only did toward the very end of his life, and Dan didn't that much, except for this essay. And he writes about, quote, the nonviolent mystique, unquote, which he said is more important than, quote, the nonviolent tactic. Unquote. And so therefore, what we need is, quote, the nonviolent mystique in action, unquote. What the heck are you talking about, Dan? That's just classic Dan America. And these puzzling expressions still have the power to take us deeper, to try to figure out what he, he's talking about, which is, which is what we need. Uh, and deeper into our own self-understanding about people as being people of nonviolence. And, and that means ultimately the contemplative depths of our movement. So here's some of his quotes from that essay. And I've never heard anybody say this before or since. Quote, nonviolence sees itself at its best as indivisible and at its least as universal. That is, as a way of life that is simply human. So you always note among responsible people, I would add of nonviolence, both a profound spiritual root and a profound political responsibility. You see what I mean about him going using words in a way to talk about nonviolence? Very different language than Dr. King. Here's his point, the point of the whole essay, in my opinion. The nonviolent person was, quote, a person of history and a person within history. The person who believes that history is a future. The one who within normal times can save normal times from their idolatries. Wow. Neglect of the poor, growing bourgeois selfishness, weapons of war, and the other realities around us. 
So the nonviolent person is a person there, period, in normal times, in crucial times, unquote. Wow. That to me is classic Dan Berrigan. And, and, and it's a different way of saying what he said several times in big rallies in the 60s, the famous quote, don't just do something, stand there. But so if you see his point, Dan saw himself, if you're a person of nonviolence in a world of total insanity, total violence, you see yourself as living as a person in the history of the world. You have a long haul view. You're not stuck with the particular violence happening this week. You're trying to change the whole direction of the world. That's fantastic. I can think of several different angles of nonviolence that Dan practiced. Contemplative nonviolence. I know we spent time, probably 30 to 60 minutes every day in prayer and mass, daily mass, and spent at least three hours every day writing about the scriptures. So that was his, he told me that was his contemplative practice. And then he would go for a walk, usually in Central Park or along the Hudson River. Usually I went with him or my friend Bob, our friend Bob in the community. Active nonviolence, he took action over and over again. He was probably arrested over 250 times. And he sort of had a take it or leave it attitude. You know, if it wasn't on the front page of the New York Times, nobody heard about it. He's following Jesus. God is seeing what he's doing. And so it's not wasted. But you have to take action. You have to be in the streets. You have to be engaging the courts. You have to be appearing regularly before a judge. And then prophetic nonviolence, which he believed in speaking and publicly for justice and peace. And speaking publicly could mean writing, if you think about it. He's silent, but he's always in print. And why was he in print? People were reading him all over the country and the world. But his nonviolence was also like his best friend, uh, Thomas Mertens. He practiced eschatological nonviolence. He had a really long haul view of things, a salvation view. He looked toward the kingdom of God and claimed his citizenship, not in America, which was a lie, but in the kingdom of God. So another great big theme of Dan's, which I heard him speak on, Probably every year for 35 years. I'm not kidding. He would always say this. Let go of results. You're working for justice and disarmament and peace. This is just in your ordinary life. An ordinary part of your day-to-day -day life. Whether or not it makes a difference, you keep at it. Do the good because it's good. Speak the truth because it's true. Work for peace and justice because that's what the God of peace and justice wants. We do what we can. And we leave the outcome in God's hands. That's an actual quote from many times I've heard him say it, and in one of his later poems, he ends with it. We leave the outcome in God's hands, which he called better hands than ours. From now on, nonviolence and nonviolent resistance are our ordinary day-to-day -day life. Just trust that because it's good and truthful, it will bear good fruit one day. Here's a very deep quote. Quote, I know that the prophetic vision is not popular today in spiritual circles, but our task is not to be popular or to be seen as having an impact, but to speak the deepest truths that we know. We need to live our lives in accord with the deepest truths we know, even if doing so does not produce immediate results in the world. Unquote. Here's another one. I know, uh, okay, so again, I, yeah, I'm looking at my notes here. It, I take that to mean one day they will bear good fruit, but it's immediate results, but we're not attached to that. Um, but you can, you can be hopeful and you can enjoy life and you just work for peace and justice as part of your daily life. When I was a kid, I mean, maybe when I was 21, one of the very first things Dan said to me was, like, kid, if you're going to spend your life resisting death, you better learn how to live life to the full. That was a great teaching. And so when I was with Dan, it would be like I was, I felt like I was like Andrew Young, Dr. King's assistant. You know, I could just cut to the chase and learn from the master. I just 
immediately at 21 stopped doing a lot like what a lot of other activists were doing and did what Dan told me and modeled my own life on his. So I saw him resisting death and living life to the full more than anyone I knew then or now. He walked every day. He enjoyed only healthy food every day. I'm not kidding. He walked and ate organically for over 90 years. Uh, and he drank every night. And he loved his friends, and laughter, and nature, and poetry. He could recite all the major poets off the top of his head, and did, uh, and read books, and wrote books, and wrote 20 letters a day. Remember this long before the computer, and then even with the computer? We would have a community mass every evening. This is 15 to 25 in our community over the last uh, 20 years of it, on the Upper West Side of New York City. And we would have community mass, let's say at 4.30, and then drinks would be produced, and then dinner. But after communion, and after the final blessing, we all turned to dance, our ritual. I'm going to get in trouble for telling the story, but Dan would then say, we've been good long enough. <laughs> we would all proceed to have a nice glass of wine. So much fun to be with, is what I'm trying to tell you. And that's my experience of Mother Teresa, Archbishop Tutu, Thich Nhat Hanh, all the saints. They're fun to be with, and they're changing the world. And that's where you and I have to keep working. We don't want to be grim peacemakers. Once, here's my, one of my favorite Dan stories. So he had his 80th birthday, and Martin Sheen, our best friend, uh, gave us uh, two first-class tickets on Aaron Lingus' round trip to Ireland. Now, I lived in Ireland. We've been there many, many times. Dan was hugely famous in Ireland. And it was a Sunday afternoon. Some of the Jesuits drove us to JFK Airport, and we are able to go to the Aer Lingus first-class lounge. Well, this was brand new for both of us, and we fly a lot. So there we are. We go to Sunday afternoon, we arrive at the Air Lingus language. I open the door and I was standing there and just then three very beautiful Irish women wearing total green walk up to us. One is holding a tray of champagne glasses. The second is holding this big tray of shrimp cocktails. The, herd, the third is holding this big tray of cappuccinos. And my eyes are bug-eyed and Dan turns to me and goes, quick, call Martin. Tell them we're canceling the trip and we spend the next two weeks in the air in this lounge. <laughs> that was Dan. It was classic Dan. He was so much fun to be with if you were his friend. And he had hundreds of friends. And like Gandhi, we just wanted to be around him. That's why I think he was a Christ figure, because I think Jesus must have been like that. He wanted to be around because he was so full of life. And therefore he didn't mind resisting that. Now Dan believed in community. He insisted that we all had to have a community, whether it's in our church or you have to join a local peace and justice group. He put it very poetically to me when I was about 21. I remember a moment he said to me one night, very quietly, with a smile, because I kept asking him the meaning of life. And he said, all you have to do is close your eyes to the culture and open them to your friends. He was a really good friend to his friends. He believed in friendship and community as the greatest way to sustain us in the long haul of nonviolent resistance. I would add along with the scriptures, the word of God, the sacraments and prayer. My friend Ken Buttigan, around the same time, around 1980, flew to New York to meet Dan and spent the afternoon with him and asked him for his advice. Dan was a brand new young activist. I mean, Ken was. And Dan said, okay, here's all you have to do. Go find a group of friends that you can pray with and march with and everything will work out. That's it's so beautiful and so simple. And do it. It's hard. You know, make a community of friends for life. This work for peace and justice is about friendship and community. Now, notice he said in marching, Dan insisted on the cost of peacemaking and costly nonviolence, to paraphrase Bonhoeffer, not cheap nonviolence or cheap peacemaking. Here's the most famous quote 
from the Vietnam days. This is from his book, No Bars to Manhood, which was made into posters. We have assumed the name of peacemakers, but we have been, by and large, unwilling to pay any significant price. And because we want the peace with half a heart and half a life and will, the war, of course, continues. Because the waging of war, by its nature, is total. But the waging of peace, by our own cowardice, is partial. There is no peace because there are no peacemakers. There are no makers of peace because the making of peace is at least as costly as the making of war, at least as disruptive, at least as liable to bring disgrace and prison and death in its wake. It's a powerful teaching. Dan believed we have to engage in nonviolent civil disobedience regularly, that the only way through positive social change is through these grassroots movements and some frontline people, good people, and he said, who break bad laws and accept the consequences. Once Mike Wallace came and he brought the 60 Minutes crew and I helped host him for a year. They were following Dan and Phil around. It was eventually on 60 Minutes, I think in 1987. And we were speaking, they were speaking, and Dan was speaking in my church basement at St. Aloysius in Washington, D.C. And a person in the audience <laughs> raised his hand and said, Dan, what's your thinking on civil disobedience? This was later, Mike Boss put it on 60 Minutes. Dan said, well, civil disobedience is like a spiritual enema. You just feel a lot cleaner and better afterwards. <laughs> no place for it. Mike Wallace just, like, I don't even know what to say to that. But that's Dan. Um, another thing, Dan had really learned to let go of fear. Now that's because he was a person of prayer who trusted in the word of God and lived in community since he was 18 years old, till 95. Now I first met Dan uh, right after I entered the Jesuits in the early 1980s at the Kirkridge Retreat Center. I, I wasn't allowed to meet him, nor, uh, this is getting off the topic, but, uh, the novice master said I was not allowed to bring Dan to the novitiate. That's just to give you a little flavor of how horrible the Jesuits treated Dan, Dan and how much they hated him till the day he died. And I submit still do. So I had to eventually took a year to get permission to go and retreat with Dan. Wow, I'm thinking of all these other stories, but I get there. And it's late at night. He says, let's stay up and talk. You know, he's meeting me. I'm 21. And I said to him, how in the heck am I ever going to work for peace? I come from a rich family. My father's head of the press club. And he looked at me straight in the eye, very calmly, very seriously, and said, what are you afraid of? Don't be afraid. Don't live in fear. Live in faith and hope and peace. I was shocked. I was like, what are you talking about? Yeah, I live in faith and hope, but I'm not going to work for peace. You mean that's connected? And no one had ever said to me, by the way, don't be afraid. I decided then and there that I would try it because I'm looking at him as I always did and, go, and feel very good. You know, they'd face death threats and mass hatred and long prison sentence. And they looked okay. They seemed to be having a good time. They were making a big difference. I thought, oh, I can do that. But then later I realized, I think we all need a teacher who tells us not to be afraid. So I'm going to pass on to you, dear holy listener, what I first heard from Dan. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Is that right? That night, the minute I met him, from the start, I noticed he was both peaceful and fearless. And he was a tower of faith. It actually felt, I used to tell people, I thought I was with St. Peter and St. Paul. You know, like, like the scriptures came so alive that I thought, oh my God, this is what those guys were like. They were like Dan and Phil. Uh, I never met anybody who exhibited such faith and fearlessness. I'm not sure I've met anybody since then. Dan believed in God. No, Dan actually really believed in God. And in the risen Jesus. And in the God of universal love. And he acted 
like he believed in God. And so he paid the price for it. And as he would say, this was his expression, he let the chips fall where they may. That was a big phrase for him. He used to say that, you just act and let the chips fall where they may. I think he got that from Merton. But no matter what, he kept going right until the end, trusting in the God of peace, cursing the false guards of war, adhering to the nonviolent Jesus, and doing what he could in a very modest human way to spread the revolution of gospel nonviolence. Well, the next morning after the night I met, the night I met him, I heard him speak. There were 20 of us there at the Kirkridge Retreat Center. It was in the basement. And he's in this little podium. And he gets up there and he goes, okay, so I'm going to read from the letter to the Ephesians and um, make a few comments. So here's what he said. Quote, the world is a kingdom of death. And into this world walks the great yes of God, the Christ, bringing trouble and all sorts of dislocations, unmaskings, law-breakings and truth-telling. The disarmed God and the disarming of God in Christ is the great scandal of history. So we are not yet a disarmed church because we are not yet worshipers of a disarmed God. God comes to us disarmed in Christ. And Christ does all the wrong things in the wrong places the wrong time with the wrong people. And you and I today, we're asked to live out the drama of the disarmed Christ in a world armed to the teeth. To confess Jesus these days is to work for disarmament. I was astonished. I'm still astonished as I read that to you now. How do you know that I, I know he said that? Because I still haven't the handwritten verbatim notes I took that morning over 40 years ago. I heard Dan say that following Jesus means working publicly for peace and justice. If you're not working for peace and justice, therefore you are not following Jesus. Are there any questions? It works for me. I, you see his point. He's saying it doesn't matter how pious you are when we're about to blow up the planet. I mean, there were a lot of devout Catholics and Christians in Nazi Germany, to put a point on it. Uh, it doesn't matter how well connected you are with your religious group or institution, or how devout. Discipleship to the nonviolent Jesus in a culture of permanent warfare, hell-bent on nuclear destruction, environmental destruction, requires radical, active, creative, public nonviolence. Now, note this word I just said which I would never have said except it were that morning at Kirkridge. Public. He then said in a sentence, I, I almost fell out of chair because I never heard anybody talk like that. Here's his, I remember him saying, I can say it by heart. It's not that we're political. It's that we're public. We go public with our peace and love and our lives. That was so helpful to me. And I could say that to everybody, my family and friends and Jesuits and church people were so mad at me. I'm saying, well, yeah, I'm just going public with what Jesus said. And no one can, they, that, that's when the cognitive dissonance shows up because you can't respond to that. I'm not political. I'm just taking Jesus' universal love and nonviolence public. Do you have a problem with that? You're for destroying the planet? Anyway, I have more I want to say, so hang in here. Dan was always hopeful and insisted on hope and would get mad at me when I would start uh, wallowing in despair. And he said, hope looks like despair. I'd go, what the heck are you talking about? This is the hope of Jesus on the cross, the hope of when there is no hope. Only then will we be hopeful. And he said something which I think he lived by. It was his mantra. Uh, and it's been mine too. If you want to be hopeful, you have to do hopeful things. Again, that's a kindergarten level statement, but I think it's also worthy of St. Paul or Thomas Merton. Actually, he's greater than Thomas Merton because Dan's an activist. It's like the early church. You know, you have to, we're never going to be able to be 
generating hope in ourselves and others unless we are engaging in building hope by working for a new, more hopeful, peaceful world. Here's another thing he once said as he was about to leave hundreds of people to be arrested at the SAC base outside of Omaha, Nebraska, 30 years ago. It was fantastic. It, it presumes you know your Dante. He said, we're going to reverse Dante and say, take on hope, all ye who enter here. In other words, if you get involved in the peace movement, you're taking on hope. Isn't that great? Dan uh, insisted that the living God was a God of life, not a God of death, which meant that for Dan, life was meant to be lived to the full, which meant that death was meant to be resisted. And more than any person I've ever met, ever, and I've met a lot of people, he talked about death. Pretty much every day for the 40 years I was with him. Only he talked about death as he would quote the poet Auden in his famous poem, Death with a capital D. I heard him say these things. We use death as a social methodology. We are addicted to death as a social methodology. We bring good things to death. That's what we're doing with, well, he called them metaphors and means of death. War, billions of people suffering, starving, living in extreme poverty, racism, police brutality, sexism, corporate greed, execution. These are all forms of bringing good people to death. 15,000 nuclear weapons, our ongoing environmental destruction. You and I, you would say, we do not work for death. We do not serve death. We are not slaves of the culture of death, nor are we sitting by silently while death is reaping what it will in its big business. So in the last few years, I saw Dan go to its death, having spent his life resisting death. So this was very deep for me because he's talked about death so much. And I witnessed him suffering a very slow diminishment into emptiness, what the scriptures call kenosis. Um, but I think it was because of his insistence of life and peace and nonviolence that he was able never to complain. And I, I know this because I talked to his nurses. I was with them. We were all friends for the last five years of his life until he was 95. And instead, he was trying to be peaceful, as mindful as possible, and he constantly is letting go and um, totally in the present moment. I remember I happened then to be in France uh, to spend a day with our friend Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist leader. And I told Thich Nhat Hanh, just before Dan died, before he had his hemorrhage, Dan is doing it. He's teaching us to the end. And we both cried because we were his best friends. And Dan and Thai, Thich Nhat Hanh was so moved. You know that Dan was faithful to the way of peace. Um, but why he was is because I heard him about the mid-80s starting to talk over and over and over and over again this phrase, letting go. Let go, let go, let go. That was his mantra every day. He lived very freely in the present moment of peace, which I didn't then, and I'm barely doing now. And was able to live into his death so peacefully because he had spent every day, certainly for the 40 years I saw him, literally letting go. If somebody said a good thing to him, he smiled and took it in, but then let it go. Someone said a bad thing to him, he let it go. You know, he did his acts of peace and justice and let him go. So he was very free. And he had a certain peace, even a certain joy that very few people had. And he was very unpopular, in fact. And in the culture, people hated him. And in the church, people hated him. I saw that happen regularly. So he lived well in peace and was able then to die well in peace because he was, in, in, in effect, having let go of so much, always in the presence, I submit, of the God of peace. So one of the lessons I've learned from him is how to live in peace and how to die in peace. Um, I remember... So I'm talking about death here, I'm talking about God, I'm talking about life and Jesus and resurrection. That's my big conclusion of this reflection. Dan was always turning the focus back on Jesus and God. 
Now this happened dramatically, maybe you've heard me say this story because I told a million people the story. In 1984, Pax Christi asked me, the young Jesuit novice, to go interview Dan. Okay, so I go in fear and trembling to see the great man. I had a tape recorder, you know how it was in those years. And Dan has dinner for me, and I turn on the tape recorder. And what I really want to know is the meaning of life. So I'm asking him, so what are you doing these days? He goes, well, I'm waiting for 10 years in prison, and I'm shaking. And, and then what are you doing? I'm, I just had Robert De Niro for dinner, and we're flying to Columbia next week. Oh, you know, and it's just incredible, his life. And it's just so bland and ordinary for him. And I said, because I want the meaning of life, um, <clears throat> Dan, uh, Dan, uh, if I may, Dan, he's looking at me like, are you getting at the point, kid? Um, What's the point of all this again? I kind of blurted out. And he leaned forward and whispered and said, somewhere I had a tape of it. All you have to do is make your story fit into Jesus's story. You could have knocked me over a chair. Because I thought he was going to say, John, you have to end all the wars in the world. Which is what I, what, what Phil would have said, what I say to people, you know, it's just, not helpful. Later, I thought, I wish he had said that because trying to make your story fit into Jesus' story is not easy. I mean, how seriously we're trying to do it. He tried to do that very seriously. That was a very helpful teaching. I remember another moment. One of many, I drove him from New York to Pennsylvania for the weekend. He was leaving the retreat. There were 100 people there, including 20 Jesuit novices who sat in the back row who were there under obedience and they hated every second of it and said so. It was so rude and embarrassing. Anyway, this is Dan's opening sentence on the Friday night in the retreat. Everybody's had dinner. We're sitting down. He's up at the podium with the microphone. We're all quiet. And he goes, well, if you want to follow Jesus, you better look good on wood. I remember we kind of turned and looked to each other and go, um, is there another retreat director here? For, you know, it was it was funny and shocking and helpful. You know, he's kind of saying he's not fooling around. It's not a feel-good spirituality. It's real. So, uh, uh, and then on another occasion, we did all kinds of things. One, our great friend, his his age, Dan's age, Bob Keck, Father Bob Keck, in a community. Bob, Dan, and I. Bob and I had a drink with Dan every night for twenty years. One of us or both of us. And so one Easter Sunday, we said, let's go and have mass and a picnic in Central Park. It turned out to be a beautiful day. And we went there. It was so great. And Dan was a gourmet cook. And we had a little mass. And I'm talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And I said to Daniel Harrison, uh, well, if it were me, I'm not coming. I wouldn't come back. You know, if I were the savior of the world and practice perfect nonviolence and told you to love one another and you betrayed me and ran away from me and tortured me and killed me and I go to heaven and God says you've got to go back. I go, I'm not going back. Those horrible people. I'd be very resentful. And then, you know, we're in, we're in Central Park at his picnic and he smiled and said quietly as he would, ah, Jesus didn't have a mean bone in his body. And you go, that's very nice. That, again, was like being with Tip Not Hard. It's such a profound statement. I don't know about you. I never heard anybody say that to me in my whole life. And I'm a priest. That was only 20 years ago. Very helpful. And if he's right, then that's what Christians need to become. And most Christians, we have a lot of mean bones in our body. So the year before he died, actually almost a year to the day before he died, I piled Dan, who was a mess, into my little rental car and drove him to Syracuse to see his older brother, Jerry, his best friend, who died a few months later, and Jerry's family was there, and I was kind of part of the family, too, all my friends. It was Easter weekend, so on Easter Sunday morning, Jerry, who's, who was 95 and two months from death, his wife, Carol, their daughter, Carla, and me are having breakfast. I'm sorry. We're having a little Easter Sunday morning mass. And we're going to go out to breakfast with us. Big pile of neighbor friends. Okay. So 
I read the gospel about the risen Jesus, making breakfast by the Sea of Galilee. And I'm pontificating to Daniel and Jerry there. Can you imagine? About the meaning of resurrection. And both Dan and Jerry, they're 94 and 95, are months from death. And they're listening to me drone on, but they love me. And finally, there's a long pause in Daniel Berrigan says. Oh my God. Again, it's like being a tick nut. So there, you're telling me there's Jesus on the sand by the Sea of Galilee with the fire making breakfast. Uh huh, I see. So to me, that means in the presence of the risen Jesus, there are no bombs, there's no violence, there's no killing, there's no racism, there's no war, there's no yelling. There's no destruction, and there's no death. We all kind of put our heads down, because Dan was so frail and so sick, he could barely talk. And again, I never thought about it that way before. It's one of the most simple, it's almost a stupid thing to say, but it's so profound. I mean, if you can meditate on that poetic insight of Daniel Berry, in the presence of the risen Jesus by the Sea of Galilee, there is no more death, or the means or metaphors of death. I'm just glad I got to live to hear him say that, and I invite you to hear him say that. Carla and I, one of my best friends, we still get chills when we think about that moment. And we didn't say anything. I never commented on that to Dan or Jerry. Nobody said anything after Dan said that. I heard him say, Every couple of weeks, over 40 years, these two sentences. Death does not get the last word. There is a slight edge of life over death. I think because I heard him say it so much, I can believe it now. Because, you know, my teacher just, that was his teaching. So I think he's one of the greatest uh, writers and teachers and practitioners of resurrection in Christian history. Now, I want to read this long statement. I'm going to end with this, which I ended the book, Daniel Berry and Central Writings on, because I think it's the greatest summary of the life of Jesus and the resurrection in Christian history. How's that for a builder? Here it goes. And just sit back and listen to this. I found this in the most obscure book. It was literally like one copy in the country. But I found it, and I made it at the highlight of the Central Writings book. So here it goes. Once there was a dead man, a criminal, a subject of capital punishment, and lo, he refused to stay dead. He stood up, and as the authorities shortly came to sense, this was an earthquake in nature. Because in the nature of law and order, in the nature of death, in the nature of war, you know, in the nature of things, according to the nation state, which is a great one for deciding what the nature of things is, dead men stay dead. That's the point. I'm, I'm adding that part. We killed you, now stay dead. The word, this is back to Dan, the word from Big Brother, the word that gives him clout and inspires fear is a criminal, once disposed of, stays disposed. Not at all. Along come these crazies shouting in public, our guy's not dead. I love that. He's risen. This is back to Dan. <clears throat> Now, I submit, you can't have such a word going around and run the state properly. Therefore, the first nonviolent revolution, of course, was the resurrection. And the event had to include death, had to include death as its first act. And also the command to Peter, put up your sword, so that it might be clear once and for all, Christians suffer death rather than inflict it. All worldly systems and arrangements are simply bypassed by the resurrection. If death has no hold over people, in the sense that they're exercised, they've exercised their fear of death, then what's left worth fearing or worth hoping from any worldly structure? All of them deserve that feisty appellation conferred on them by Dorothy Day 
the filthy, rotten system. I take that to mean she was referring to their main function. Talking about the state. Multiplying the metaphors and means of death. The end of such a world as she realized and regarded it was not only near. The end of such a world has already occurred. Wow. I've read that hundreds of times and I'm trying to live my life according to that teaching as a Christian. I really invite you to do the same because I think he's put it better than anybody, any modern, any Christian since St. Paul. Dan talked and practiced resurrection. He acted as if someone had actually risen from the dead. That death no longer has any power on us and therefore that we don't need to fear death nor that we do we need to be ruled by the state which only has the power of death as its ultimate form of punishment. We are free from the power of death. So therefore, we can nonviolently resist the structures of death, knowing the slight edge of life over death. That's why if you listen to some of my other podcasts, because of my life with Daniel Barrett, and that I define resurrection as having nothing to do with death. I said that, but only because I've been listening to Dan speak about resurrection for 40 years. Resurrection means having not a trace of violence in you. Therefore, resurrection means total nonviolence. Dan knew our survival was already guaranteed. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be violent, nor do we need to be discouraged. We're headed toward resurrection. So don't be afraid or cooperate with the big business of death, or for that matter, have anything to do with death. Here's another statement. Actually, this is the conclusion to that, as I recall. Here goes. So since 1980 and all the plowshares actions, some of us continue to labor to break the demonic clutch on our souls. The ethic of Mars, of wars and rumors of wars, of inevitable wars, just wars, necessary wars, victorious wars, and we say our no to our acts of hope. And for us, for all these repeated arrests, the interminable jailings, the life of our small communities, the daily discipline of nonviolence, these have embodied an ethic of resurrection. Simply put, we long to taste that event. Its thunders, its quakes, its great yes. We want to test the resurrection in our bones to see if we might live in hope instead of the thicket of cultural despair, nuclear despair, world of per perpetual war, we want to taste the resurrection. May I say, we have not been disappointed. Wow. That's the gauntlet that Daniel Berrigan throws down before us. So despite the insanity of the world and the times, we have been given a beautiful example in his nonviolent life and teachings. We're invited to rise to the occasion and carry on as he did to stand up and say no to violence and war and all its metaphors and means and death, to base our lives in loving kindness and building community and practicing nonviolence, and to go forward and speaking out publicly, prophetically, for the coming of a new culture of peace and justice and spreading the vision of a new nonviolent world far and wide. My hope and prayer is that all of us will carry on Dan's work of peace and nonviolence now more than ever and resist this filthy, rotten culture of violence and death, and stand up publicly against the culture and for the coming of a new culture of nonviolence, that like Dan, our goal will be to taste the resurrection. I believe we're faithful to the journey of peace and nonviolence. Like Dan, we too will not be disappointed. Thank you, and God bless you.